The great philosopher Kierkegaard said, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Looking back only results in learning for people who have that time to think. And many of us are so busy with day-to-day demands that we rarely have time to reflect. And that's why we started What I Wish I Knew. It's for those moments when you realize that just a bit of insight might have come in handy if you had it in advance. I'm Mike Irwin. And I'm Simon Dore. So we talk with people from all walks of life, from startup entrepreneurs to Fortune 500 CEOs, professional athletes to weekend warriors, from artists and to designers, to even engineers who became designers. From those who dream to those who dream and actually do. They all have three things in common. None are perfect. All are humble and each have truly incredible learnings. In what I wish I knew, they share these lessons with you. Join us at whatiwishanewshow.com. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And please share and subscribe to What I Wish I Knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Daw. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to this episode of podcast. And we have uh, a gentleman, Ken Sharman. Uh, Born and bred uh, just outside the east part of London. Uh, had a fascinating early years there, which I'm sure he'll uh, tell us about. Um, interesting, tough journey in his early years and come through and develop some amazing stories for us to, to understand today. Um, his passion and pursuit of uh, social welfare and how we help people of all sorts and all races is absolutely amazing. And um, I guess along the way, he shared with us a few interesting um, anecdotes, like uh, uh, when he was younger, um, he helped with repairing and building work with his family, and he happened to repair the wrong house because he got the house number uh, completely in, in there, yeah, correctly. So, But with that, um, I'm delighted to welcome you here, Ken. And um, I guess let's start, uh, not necessarily a, around you fixing the wrong house in uh, Dagenham, but um, yeah, t- tell us a little bit about your learning as you came through and, and from a, a reasonably um, um, sought out family in the East End. Yeah, no, I was very lucky, Dave. First of all, hello everybody. And um, uh, I, I'm very grateful to be here and share some stories and I hope you find them valuable. Uh, I, I was very lucky to be from a really loving family. You know, I grew up in, I didn't realize that we were poorer than, than other people or a lot of other people. Um, we, we did what we wanted to do. We played our sport, you know, we, there's always food on the table, um, but we were working class. Um, and until the age of 11, I just thought everybody is the same. You know, we lived in a big housing estate in East London. We were in the shadow of the Ford factory at Dagnum, uh, where I later worked. Um, but when I was 11, I passed the 11 plus, uh, which was um, a kind of like a, an aptitude, intelligence test which everybody took in those days in England and it put you down a different route of education uh, so uh, a small percentage of people I don't know, it's probably 20% of people passed it uh, and went to a grammar school and from there you didn't realize it you're on the conveyor belt to university and a different life to the people in the community that you grew up with um, you didn't vote for it you didn't choose it it happened and I think I was probably in my mid-twenties when I realised I'm just never going to go back and live in East London again. I'm never going to live with the people who I grew up with, my family and friends again, because I'm now pursuing this professional career. Uh, so that was, that was a turning point. Um, so that kind of sets the scene of meritocracy. Here, here's a person who was, through accident of birth, um, born with a, a, a brain which was a bit sharper than some others, um, so I went down that route. But then at the same time, why, why did I repair the wrong house on the Upper Rainham Road in Dagnum? Yeah, and then we had to run away because it so badly. The people weren't in. And if they'd come back, they'd have probably arrested me. So it would have been like creative vandalism. Anyway, uh, we, got, we threw the ladders on the van and, and drove away. Why was it the wrong house? It's because, Simon, my, I can't count. Yeah, I'm actually dyscalculic, which is you've heard of dyslexia. dyslexia yeah. Um, uh, dyscalculia is when you you really can't be trusted to count. I can't write down phone number. Um, if I have to work out the tip in a restaurant, people give me the bill and then stand back and laugh. 
it's, it's, I can't do it. Uh, so I've found a way to get through life and I've spent my life working in tech and believe it or not, working mainly on financial systems. Um, but uh, that, that was a, an impediment. Um, and it meant that in um, uh, school, uh, senior school, I managed to leave school without um, a, a qualification in maths or science or languages. Um, so in theory, I was on the scrap heap, but um, I did manage to get through to a university. I was really interested in IT. Um, uh, so I, I pursued it in the early days. You know, I, I, I was lucky in that I was, um, I was a bit of a, a Rottweiler when I was younger. Uh, and uh, I was working at 3M and they, they, there was a, um, uh, a need to revamp the business because its big money maker was photocopying and um, it, it lost a patent. The Japanese plain paper copying businesses, Canon, whatever, moved in. The company needed to um, reorganize. Uh, and I was part of a small hit team who had to look at ways to cut costs. Um, and an older guy who I was working with introduced me to the spreadsheet, uh, the original VisiCalc running on the CPM operating system, even before there was an IBM P PC and DOS. I was just captivated with that. It just seemed to me a miracle, you know, an endless piece of paper. Um, it was arithmetic that I could understand on the screen. You know, believe it or not, I, I, I do have an aptitude for being able to visualize a database in my mind. Um, and that, that put me into that world of tech, which is where I kind of trampolined through the rest of my career from and covering up the fact that I can't count. But growing up, um, yeah, it, it, it's still the same in the UK, isn't it? You, 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 there is a blue collar and a white collar, a knowledge worker and non-knowledge worker division in our society. We, we, we see it in the UK. Um, I, I, my heart bleeds for America, a place I really like. I've, been, I've visited nearly every state during the course of travels and, and work in there. And the social divisions <coughs> that we've allowed to ride in, arise in our society are causing us real harm now. And, and some of that is because we've a, a, accumulated too much status and income, I think, uh, in in the knowledge work, the office work, professional technical classes. I think we should have been a bit better at sharing it, but um, you know, uh, we, we, we can address that maybe. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, Ken, just, just um, and that's a really important point, and I know it'll come through later on, on some of your more recent um, uh, learning and, and, and what you've done. But that's an interesting dichotomy, isn't it? Your, your lack of understanding of numbers or, or visualizing numbers, yet you pushed yourself, you know, to go straight into IT. What, what was that attraction in particular? Though? What, was that your, you talked about yourself as a Rottweiler, was that your, right, I'm going to have a go with this? Or was that like, this is a really, really interesting growth area? Was it, a, was it an intuitive thing or was it just a self-belief? Well, okay, a couple of things. First of all, I, once I got to age 11 and went to that senior school and then started mixing with people who had more money than us, um, I was determined to have more money. I became ambitious, yeah. I wanted a career that was gonna pay me money uh, uh, and, and, and good money. Um, so I was always on the lookout for a career that would, would do that. Um, <clears throat> then uh, when I went to work, I started in set, well, I started actually at Ford Motor Company in purchasing. So I, you know, you learn to be a Rottweiler if you're a buyer and you're a buyer for Ford, you really threw your weight around. Um, and I learned some really good lessons at Ford, um, which I still use, utilize today. And one of the biggest ones was, um, and we, we had this drummed into us, never let anybody let you down on a promise. If somebody says they're gonna do something, they've got to do it. And even if, even if they let you down, it caused you no harm, you really have to beat them up afterwards because we all, we, everything exists on trust and people's words. Yeah, you can have contracts, but really, we, we, the, the world revolves around trust and, and, and people living up to their word. <clears throat> so I learned, I learned that at Ford, uh, and I've applied it ever since. But it really, you know, and I can be hard on people, but it's not really my nature. I can do it. It's not really my nature. I'm more positive. So. I wanted to go into a more creative side of business. So that means sales and marketing, doesn't it? You're, instead of being a goalkeeper in, in buying, you're 
you're a you're an attacker you're a striker you're a goal scorer uh, if you're in sales and marketing so i did a while in sales then the big break for me came when i got a job at, at 3m and i was quite old then i was like 25 26 when i got like a junior level marketing job um and i just became obsessed with work you know it's, it's i looked around me and um, thought, these people are all so good. I'm going to get the sack within six months. I can't ever measure up to their standards. Um, and day by day, I realized, actually, I'm as good as anybody here. In fact, then I started to realize I was better than most of the people there. And um, uh, the, the waters parted in front of me. Um, I had a good run. Uh, people um, in the job above me <laughs> left. I didn't frighten them away. I don't know what they did, but they left. And then I kind of moved into that space. And wherever I was given a chance, I didn't drop it. Yeah. So I did a good job, got a good reputation um, uh, uh, and, and built a platform from that. And one of the tools that I used that got me ahead of other people was the spreadsheet and a, and a, a liking for computers. It made me more productive. Um, and also there was a fight to be had because in those days, um, the IT department didn't want PCs, didn't want everybody to have local computing power. They were very territorial. So it was like a contest, you know, let's sneak my computer in and they don't know I've got it. And then in the end they had to give in and, and everybody got one. But, um, so I got into, into tech from that. And then of course tech was where the money was. Yeah. This was the period of, deregulation it was the the era of reganomics and thatcher's reforms and and the opening up of markets and uh in the financial uh, sector um uh, uh deregulation meant that that um they all equipped with uh, more and more computers they could do electronic trading uh, they were making so much money that anybody who sold computers was making money as well because the big companies were paying you loads of commission to sell it uh so i went down that route i i i think i was okay at it um i didn't good at it uh but i went down it for the money uh, and and actually it's changed isn't it I, what, what do i like about it it's changed it's never standing still you know it, it, in fact the products never get finished before we bring out the new one you know i'm still waiting for a working version of microsoft windows aren't we all yeah the one that does work yeah properly um, but IT, we don't have the we don't have the leisure to stand back and finish something completely and perfectly because we got to be moving on to the next thing, and that that's been a great um, a great industry and environment to work in. You know, to, to Ken, to yeah, Ken, you said you were successful or more successful than the others, and you realised that. What what did you bring? I, I mean, you said you worked at the spreadsheets and stuff, but what did you bring that was that was different? Well, okay. Um, the, I think the big thing was that hunger uh, to get on and a willingness to take risks. Yeah, I've never, I've still got that. I'm still willing to jump into a off top board into a, a dark swimming pool and then find out if there's any water in it. Yeah, it, it's, it's, I think some people are a bit like that you know you fancy your chances yeah and you think well whatever's going to be thrown at me i'll be able to deal with it um and, and if you have that personality then and you are willing to take risks then rewards do go with it yeah uh, 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 and so do penalties yeah you you sometimes there isn't any water in that pool and you land and you're you know you're just a pile of broken bones i've had that experience but it doesn't put me off doing it again um, so, and what are the rewards? Uh, well, Simon, Mike, anybody else who's listening, I can tell you what the rewards are because I ran a big experiment on myself in this. They're financial, but it's not really financial. Yeah. So you, you do it. I found out that I do want the money, but not, it's not the real reason. So I've got a comfortable life. You know, I look out the window at my little farm here and I've got my little collection of Porsches just around the corner. Um, so I have, don't worry about me. I'm, I'm, I'm well off enough to survive, but it's not about the money anymore. It's about proving something. Can I do it? Are the people who, who look down on, on me, who used to look down on me, are they looking now and seeing that I made it? Am I creating something that didn't exist before? 
So it's all that Schumpeter stuff about being an entrepreneur and building something and creating something um, which drives you into being imaginative, a willingness to take risk um, uh, and, and enjoying the fact that you can sit back and say, well, we did that or I did that. And, and if it hadn't been for me and my mates and my colleagues, then it wouldn't have happened. So it, it's, it's that, yeah, it's creativity, I think. And, and the experiment I played on myself was I set up a wargaming company at King's College London. It was the Department of War Studies. I worked for two really famous war studies professors, Sir Lawrence Friedman and Mike Clark. Um, Sir Lawrence Friedman actually sat on the Chilcot inquiry into the Iraq war. Um, uh, uh, and when I came in as CEO, the, the, the original startup money came from Pfizer, um, who the chief strategy officer of Pfizer in Groton actually used to be a Royal Navy submarine officer. He was a doctor. Um, and he said, when we, when we um, get these strategic papers from McKinsey and BCG and whatever, we never really know if it's going to work or not. It's bet the farm stuff. So um, how can we test it? And, and uh, he said, well, we used in the military, we did war games. So we took war gaming methodology, real, I mean, I'm not talking about paintball I'm talking about finding <laughs> real strategic war games where real people play themselves over a couple of days and um, we tested plans and strategy and that well I was a CEO and when I joined they offered me what I thought was a paltry amount of shares yeah I just what you want you know it's me I'm going to make this business a success and that's what you're giving me but I really liked the idea of the business so I said um, keep the shares don't even want them yeah, um, uh, but I, I do want to run this business. And when we get to the point where there's a liquidity event or when, we, when we're along the way um, and, and I've shown that the business is successful, then you'll have to give me shares because you want to keep me, won't you? Yeah. And so um, that was the plan. And they went for that. I don't know, don't know why, but they went for it. And two years later, the business was really being successful. You know? And we, we had a... Um, uh, a funding round and my shares were were were, were going to come along and they were going to be in place uh, and like on the day when we're going to sign up Lehman's uh, collapsed and the whole market collapsed and, and all investments were off and then they said well we're going to close your business down and I said no you're not I'll buy it off you for a pound yeah I couldn't let that business die <laughs> so it, it, it's like you can't do that it's my child I created it it's brilliant and uh, so I funded it myself for a year and we sold it to Deloitte the year after that. And that kind of proves it's not just about for not much money, not as much money as the effort I put in anyway. But I still felt that was um, a honourable outcome and we'd done something important. Um, so I was happy with that. It, it wasn't a gig where I made a lot of money, but we did something which was great. We had a great time. We created a great business. Deloitte took it on. You know, they've made more money out of it than I did. Um, but it, it, it shows something about your personality. Yeah. If you're so building on, like yeah, building on that, <laughs> Ken, where do you, you know, it sounds like you also attach purpose to your work, you know, and, and to some extent, you know, what I heard you say about money is that it's almost a measure of, of impact less than, and that probably is more important to you than, yeah. than the actual tangible outcome of you have your, your, you know, bank account fuller than it was, you know, was before. Yeah. But, so as you look at your life, as you look at your your business and the things that you engage in, how do you find purpose in what you do? Well, of course, now I work for Unilever. I'm the CEO of a Unilever technology spin-out. Yeah, so I, and it's quite high profile because, as we all know, Unilever makes ice cream and soap, and now we're doing technology. So if we get one if we get one failed project, then I'm toast. Yeah. So um, it, it, it's quite, it's quite a departure for Unilever. So how do you measure purpose? I think it is that creativity thing that I talked about. We, we want to build something. Uh, lots of people say you can't do it. Well, that's great. That's a challenge too, because we can prove them wrong. Can't we? The moment you get into a market, there's competitors. So it, that that's kind of like, um, you want to prove you're better than the competition and they always, you know, they always become villains and you always become the, 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 the cowboys in the white hats, don't you? If you're working in, in our firm, so they're bad, we're good. Uh, so that adds some 
theatre to life. Uh, I, I think, it, it, uh, and here's a, here's a really big thing for me, uh, which is I want to prove that we can be as successful as the bad guys by being good. Yeah. So we can tell the truth. We can look after our employees. Uh, we can let people make mistakes and we don't jump on them. We're human. Yeah. We, we, we aren't horrible to anybody and we're going to be as successful as the people who take all the shortcuts and do the bad things. Yeah. So it's proving that rights can prevail as much as um, give me a big paycheck. Yeah. A, a paycheck, I, I say is important, but it's not the big thing. Now, the technology business I run at Unilever actually is consolidating and managing the whole of reward across the organization or any organization. So in Unilever, it happens to be 165,000 employees and uh, our system manages, reports on, uh, measures, analyzes $6 billion of spend a year across those 165,000 employees. And of course, the person who's earning the most money is Alan Jope, who's the CEO. And I, I'm not going to tell you what Alan earns, but you can look it up in the annual report. It's a, it's a tidy sum of money. Um, and I think that CEOs in all organizations these days, except for me, uh, in all organizations are, are paid too much money. Yeah. And, and I think they would probably, if you got them on their own down the pub, agree with you. Um, so why do they, why does that happen? And if you didn't pay them the market rate, why would they be upset? Why might they leave? It, it's not the money. Yeah. So if we, I don't know, if we, let's say there's a CEO who's earning hundred million a year, would he or she earn, uh, work any less hard, uh, for 99 million? Does the extra million, does the extra dollar make them work harder? No. What is it then that it is about money and reward that motivates people? Does a US Navy SEAL or a British SAS trooper, um, uh, are they prepared to lay down their life for money? Not really. No, they're, they're doing it for something else. Um, and I think it's because you want the respect of your peers. You've got a group of people who you identify with and you want them to think that you are as good as them or better than them. It's a, money becomes a proxy. It's a way of measuring your worth and your performance. And, and that's what we've fallen into the trap of. There are other ways of doing it. Yeah. You know, other rituals, uniforms, medals, there are other ways of showing people that you've got huge worth, but the way uh, that business and banking and some sectors have fallen into the trap of is, is just through money. Um, so you, you, you couldn't pay them 99 million, if they're somebody they regarded as an inferior performer to them was earning a hundred million, they, they wouldn't like it. Yeah. So purpose is different to reward yeah, or, or financial economic reward in my experience. I've read a lot on this. I've done a lot of reading on this. There's my book, some of them. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I have put a lot of thought into this. I, I, I'm actually a member of a, of a, a campaign group, which is trying to get, uh, pay controlled yeah not not reduced you know i'm no socialist but i do think it's got out of control and when i first joined the high pay center in the uk 10 years ago um the people who were at the meetings were marxists anarchists quakers um uh, they were they were kind of on some kind of moral crusade to, to stop business people being paid. Now, when I go to those meetings, uh, it's hedge fund managers, it's investors, it's big companies. The last one I went to was on the, it was in an executive suite uh, in, in the uh, Gherkin in London, a famous tall office building in London, swanky city office building. And we had a, um, a, a direct report to Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway fund manager at the meeting. It's gone mainstream. We, we can all see now, <clears throat> I think, that there's um, a correction that has to be made. And I don't think if you, uh, and I think the correction can be made and it won't have any impact on business performance if we find a way of making people feel important and valued, but not necessarily just by money. There are other things. Yeah.
Yeah. So Ken, a knighthood. Uh, yeah, taking on board what you've just described, then, mm. and in in a sense, it, you could argue it's okay because, like you said, you've been there, done it, and seen it. What about you know some of the people listening here along the way, along the a career and journey, and wherever they are? What what you know what parts of that purpose should they be? adopting because you're going to get a leader of a team and you're going to get a single team member what what would you say is a kind of overarching what i wish i knew piece here that people should be thinking about adopting or self-reflecting on well i, th I th there's such a a, a a literature on this subject isn't there and that there are so many you know leadership books and and uh, theories on it um uh, and i'm just going to say the stuff that you learn when you were in, in the infant school or junior school, you know, it, it's cliche stuff, but it really, really does matter. Um, the, the book that really impressed me when I was at school was a, an illustrated history book about the life of Admiral Nelson, you know, the, the hero of the Battle of Trafalgar and how Nelson was this man who, if a new, when he was a ship's captain, if they got a new recruit on the ship and he was scared of climbing the rigging he would have a race with him and get to the top of the mast you know to show him that uh, he was as brave as anybody and anyone can do it so he led by example uh, he was a risk taker he, he he was a bit vain actually the book wasn't quite right but he was willing to give credit to other people um, if there was a dangerous situation he would put himself at the front in a dangerous situation and, and I tried to it's uh, i kind of it made a, an impression on me those are my kind of heroes um uh, and i've tried to apply those theories in work at business yeah so you do have problems in it and you do have uh, situations where you get uh, there, there can be some difficulties um and i will go in with the team who's working on that yeah because if, if somebody's going to get shouted at i want it to be me um and and what happens there is um, that people who work for you respect you for it and then they work harder for you yeah they become there's a trust and loyalty that builds up there which means you get a multiplier effect from your team and as you progress in your career your actual individual contribution to what goes on reduces you know there's only so many minutes in my day or hours in out your day or my day but there's that that number of minutes multiplied by the number of people in my team if i can get them to work harder uh, and uh, make sacrifices and do the right thing uh, so um it it, it it's that it, it, it is uh, to lead by example be selfless give credit away um uh, give give people good rewards and, and i've been able to take a team in, you you know i've done lots of startups and and some core people have have come with me from gig to gig yeah because we like each other's company and they know they're going to get a square deal and that's such an advantage you know you you've got your your reliable startup team um you know we're going to get the band together again we'll get out there and and we're we're riffing away it, it's great you know I, I like their company we're doing a great thing but they wouldn't do it if you hadn't looked after them. So hmm. it's a really good book. Uh, I'm looking at it across the bookshelf, the other side here, called It's My Ship. Uh, and it's about a First Navy commander who, who inherited the worst ship in the US Navy. Uh, and within a year, he turned it into the best ship by doing exactly that kind of thing. So modern day Nelson. I, 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 if anybody wants a good book on leadership, I'd, I'd recommend that. Um, he really, uh, 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 oh, sorry, it's, 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 it's called It's Your Ship. It's Your Ship. Yeah. So whenever anybody asked him a question, he would say, well, it's your ship. You tell me. But then if they made a mistake, he'd stand behind them. Yeah. So you encourage people to expand and, and reach their level of potential. But you must never blame them if you've given that backing to them and it, you know, it fouls up. Um, so Ken, just to build on what you just said, I mean, one of the things I had always told people, my teammates that I would work with is sometimes if they introduced me to someone else or they would describe our work together, they would start off with something like, well, I work for Mike or whatever. And my advice was always, no, you don't. You don't work for me. 
you work for yourself. And no matter where you go, you always work for yourself. And together we're working on this business, but you work for yourself. But given the fact that, that most people have to, have to join some sort of organization because they have to work and whether they're joining a startup or they're joining a, a, a company or whatever, they have to throw in with somebody. So what's your advice to someone at that stage that has to join an organization um, as far, in terms of choos choosing the right one? Yeah, well, uh, <clears throat> organizations have cultures and, and, and if you've worked in sales, you can <clears throat> rock up to an organization, you, you pretty quickly size up what kind of firm this is. And, and, I, and I think reputations, you know, they spread about companies or, 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 or organizations. Um, you want to work for a, an organization that respects everybody in the company uh, as far as you can. So I, I, I refer to the Navy, I think a good ship in the Navy where every crew member uh, is made to feel like they're part of the team would be an example of that. Uh, uh, and I work for a team. I, I work for the company, but I work for my team. And we have a social contract between us, which is almost like a, uh, 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 you know, a, 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 a uh, blood pledge uh, that we will always put the team before our own personal interests. Um, it's easier to do that in startups, but some big organizations uh, have, have managed to do that. And, and a, a good one that I can think of in the UK that I had experience of is a company called Rent-A-Kill, which actually um, does pest control. Uh, and a Rent-A-Kill van driver who's like killing rats uh, isn't on a huge wage, but somehow they've got a really fantastic team effort. I, I did an IT system in that company and that, that they, they do specialist hygiene, they, they clean crime scenes. I heard this story of a, of a guy who cleaned a crime scene, it was actually a suicide, so somebody shot their head off in, in, in the house and bloodstains were everywhere, cleaned up, but there were bloodstains still on the ceiling. And the guy uh, who cleaned it had done his job, he, was, he, he could leave and the family were due to move back in. But he went out with his own money bought a tin of paint and painted the ceiling so they didn't have to see that. That's team spirit, yeah? That's not just an individual. That's because I, I wear the Rent-A-Kill badge. Uh, I'm, I'm not representing myself or Rent-A-Kill. I'm, I'm representing Rent-A-Kill and my mates and my team. You know? And organizations could do that, but you have to live up to... Don't we often hear people are our greatest asset, but you look around you and you think, well, that's not really how you're treating your people. Um, I think if you did that, then you get much more discretionary effort is what they call it in HR. You get much higher productivity. Uh, so I, I think building up team spirit is great. And, and the modern method now, which is becoming really trendy, of project management, which is leaking out into the rest of the business, is this, the, the uh, agile methodology where we split um, work groups into squads or teams of eight to 10 people and you build that, that team spirit. I think that's really good. If you go to PwC's offices in London, you know, when people used to go to the office, uh, they, they did away with all the partners offices and made it all open plan, but then they made, they brought in um, oval tables. So teams sat around the table and identified with each other. When I worked at Deloitte, I had to for a year, uh, it was uh, hot desking. You never had a home. You didn't know who you'd be sitting next to uh, the, the next day. And that, I think, missed, um, it left productivity on the table. But if you put people around a, a hub, a team, they socialize, I think you get um, uh, greater loyalty, greater output. So your, your person needs to look for an organization which is, which is like that. Yeah, it, it, where it's got a good, good sound culture. Uh, I, I think there are fewer organizations around like that because work has been commoditized. Um, and we, we, we've seen it, we've seen it with globalization, we've seen it with outsourcing. Um, um, works have been um, chunked up and work has been chunked up and de-skilled so that we can kind of, you know, give everybody a small bit, it's like digital tailorism, give everybody a small thing to do and then you don't need to have a technical person to do it. And, and, and I think we lose the combined output of, um, of humanity as a, a social enterprise and we've replaced it with a sort of, if we're not careful, we replace it with a machine, a heartless machine. And, and just moving on from that, Ken, you know, 
the current situation, COVID, is affected, like you said, the way we're all working right, right now. But your sense of, you know, what you've learned, um, knowledge um, along the way, and, um, and more recently, COVID, how do you see how people in their roles should be thinking about how they work, their style, their approach, the kind of, you know, the essence of what you have in your knowledge bank here, you know, what's, what would you see as, as best practice? Are you talking about post COVID best practice? How do we adapt yeah. post COVID world? Uh, I'm... And, and probably beyond that, Ken, because, because you know, I guess we hope, you know, mm. that it's a, it's an episode of sorts, but you know, we all think and feel, I guess, that, that, that there will be a lag um, impact here. Yes, uh, so, okay, <clears throat> um, I want, I'm an optimistic person. I, I actually believe we should make space in our minds for the best case scenario, as well as the worst case scenario. And the best case scenario is, we're seeing signs of it. You know, the infection fatality rate is coming down. There are uh, interventions, there, are tre there is treatment now, which reduces the fatalities. Uh, the, the, uh, the virus itself, might be becoming um, more virulent and more people might be getting it, but it, it might not be causing such severe consequences for people who get it. Um, we might have a vaccine. It's possible that within the next 12 months, um, we can return to something like normality and then pent up demand will, uh, will, will break through the floodgates and we'll have a, a really good V-shaped recovery. I, I think firms should be planning for that. You know, you shouldn't be reaching for the, redundancy list you should be thinking how can we keep the business going with all the people in it so that we can be there to take full advantage of recovery I, I, I think firms should be doing that but the reality is there will be job losses there's a change to the way we work which is you know, we're, we're going to be working remotely for um, it's a structural change businesses are taking advantage of the um, the rent reduction, yeah, it's offices are expensive, um, uh, people have proved they can work from home, lots of people like working from home, they're saving on commuting, firms are taking advantage of that, saying, well, we're going to reduce the office space and you only need to come into the office if you need to, or if there's a meeting on. Uh, and I look at that and I think, well, that's, that's really hard for me, <clears throat> who believes in the power of social interaction and the chemistry that comes of having um, important teams being present with each other. Uh, you, you, you can't measure it as an intangible, but I think it's real. Um, so you, we, we are adaptable as a species. So we're going to have to learn how to um, uh, replace as much of that spark, perform as much as we can, as well as we can uh, remotely, you know, and, 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 and in our team, Every Friday, uh, we knock off at four o'clock. We have, thank God, it's Friday drinks and, and nobody's allowed to talk about work. We all have a, a meeting on Teams in which we just kind of talk like we would in the office. It's not as good as being in the office, but at least it's a chance for you all to socialise and catch up with everybody's news. We're going to have to invent artificialities like that. My hunch is uh, that... We, we, a pendulum has swung uh, here and sure enough, we're all going to, you know, cancel our office rents and try and work from home. But I think what's going to happen is um, there'll be a migration back into the office. So I, I think uh, humanity is a social, we're a social species. We need to be with each other. We perform better when we're with each other and there'll be a gradual migration back into the office and the companies who are back in the office will start to outperform those who aren't and you know the offices will be occupied again but I, it won't happen overnight you know it might take a couple of years to happen that's that, that's my guess um, and during that time I think it's going to be harder um, uh, for people who've got my kind of philosophy uh, as to what a workspace should be I'm not saying it can't be done but here's a question for you then you know if, you, if your life depended on the outcome of a project um, who, which project team would you give it to? The one which costs you more money because they turn up, it's a team that knows each other and they turn up and they're co-located in, in one office. So you're paying for their office. Or would you say, well, I know what the skills are for that team. I'll go on to the open market for work. I'll 
dial-in skills, I'll see who applies, and I'll set up a team with exactly the same profile of skills, and they're all working remotely. They could be anywhere in the world, you know, and I'll save money. I'll save a lot of money, actually, by that route, yeah? So same, same skill set, one team works together, the other team is distributed remotely, different locations. Your life depends on the outcome of the product project, which team you gonna vote for. It's a no-brainer, isn't it? It's a no-brainer. Yeah. <laughs> don't pause. Don't let me down, boys. You're gonna vote for the team who work together, yeah? Yeah, of course. It's gonna cost you more money, yeah? yeah? And I think that principle will be borne out in the post-COVID world. Um, I, I, I place a lot of stock in that. That's one of the things that I, I discovered in work, yeah? That, that team chemistry is, is so vital. It's, it's, it's really, really important. And I think, you know, some of the research that, you know, that is starting to pop up or surveys or whatever indicate that there are a proportion of people that would really prefer to work from an office. Sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I know people, yeah. And young people especially. Yeah, and I, I so I want to ask you about something. You, you mentioned earlier, Ken, you talked about the importance of doing well and doing good in business. And one of the things that seems to have emerged in this COVID era, and, and maybe, you know, in my opinion, it's worse in the US than maybe, than maybe anywhere else in the world, but right in front of our eyes, we have blatant lying and cheating and you know, stuff that just doesn't reflect any sort of standard of, of basic ethics or morality or, or even basic decency. And it's played out on a massive stage, at least you know, in my home country. Um, some people seem to be very concerned about it and some people couldn't care less. They cheer it on. Yeah. So we're, we're at an era and, and I think to some extent, I, 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 from afar, I witnessed a little bit of that with Brexit, right? There were, you know, there was a polarization. Oh, yeah. mm. how, how does the world kind of come back together and, and, you know, what implication do you think that this sort of, you know, polarization has on the workplace? Wow. Uh, you've just hit a subject there that I intend to write a book about, which is lying. Yeah. And, and, and I, the reason I want to write a book about it is because I've worked in projects for so long, all my life. Yeah. And uh, of course, there's one thing you know about an IT, three things you know about an IT project. Yeah. The people who came up with the plan uh, have got the budget wrong. They've got the timing wrong. And it also won't do what it said. They said <laughs> it would do, yeah? So were those people lying has been one of the questions I've, ex I've, I've made it my life mission to explore. And, and when I was 54, I, 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 I did a master's degree at Oxford University in major projects, which to me was all about lying. Can we stop people lying? Are there methods? Um, can we explain why they lie? Are there defenses we can, we can deploy uh, to reduce the harm? So I've actually got a bookshelf here, which is all about lying. And the best book on lying is it's actually called lying by professor Cicela Bock B-O-K is a Swedish professor who, who spent her career in America and she forensically uh, classifies every form of lie yeah so the lying that we have going on in politics at the moment and, and it happens in Brexit Trump Trump is an expert liar of course um, is a form of lying which is the same kind of line you get when you're selling a second-hand car or when you're playing poker or when you're in or when you're negotiating diplomats are negotiating within the social context of the lie that's being told being told everybody knows there's lying going on yeah so we all discount what is being said yeah so you you you, you um you, you, the people who are lying sort of say, well, it's not really a lie because they know I don't mean it. You know, Trump, Trump can contradict himself in the course of, you know, from the beginning of a sentence be before he gets to the full stop. He, he, he's, he's contradicting himself. Is it a lie? It, it, when he, you know, when he denies the truth, is it a lie? Well, I think if you can decode it, um, then actually what you're watching there is a performance, yeah? What is Trump really doing? What were Brexit people really doing? They were, they were standing up for a group of people who were dissatisfied and, and uh, felt neglected. And what he does, actually, this is my view on Trump. What Trump does is he annoys the people who the neglected people don't like. Yeah? And therefore, they like Trump. Yeah? That's what's going on here. Yeah? It, we never rely on what he says. 
is that a way to organize a society, um, uh, a firm, uh, a social group? No, it's, it's absurd. And we have to rediscover the value of telling the truth and being reliable. Yeah. In projects, um, our project, the project I inherited at Unilever, which now become a company, um, was a failed project. Yeah. So, um, it was, it was way late. It was way overspent. Um, uh, Xerox were the supplier of the technology, uh, Unilever were the buyer. Uh, and I was asked to come in and be like a project doctor, you know, review the project, see what was going on. Actually, what I found there was, uh, you look at it and think, God, this is a, such a mess. You know, how could they be so far out? Yeah. Somebody was lying. But then I researched and researched it. Actually, no one was lying. What there was, was a bunch of people who were optimistic on both sides. They were way over optimistic on both sides. And then through the first 12 months of the project, reality bit. And then they could get to a point where they knew what the truth was. Yeah. But by then, they'd all pin their colors to the mast. Yeah. I'm going to get this system up and running. And it's going to be fixed price. And we're going to do it. And we're going to make loads of money. Actually, what I, what I did was just tell them to you're doing something really good you just got to rewrite the contract yeah and and if you don't then they're all going to get the sack and um and, and you've got to go and tell your bosses you're not going to make as much money out of your thought of it but actually what you're doing is good and we persuaded them to do that they came to a mutual agreement uh, a compromise um and then i stayed on on that project but after that we stopped the lying because we introduced what we called spreads and options so now on, on the projects i work on we never have fixed price. We never have fixed date. We never have a, a fixed standard for the, the definition of the product. We work to spreads. Yeah. We're going to get this. We're going to get this episode of work finished between this date and that date. And then as we advance down the path, we can narrow the spread and it's the same with the budget. Yeah. And actually we know when in it creation, we know that what we thought we needed at the beginning is never what we discovered we needed at the end. So we're going to have to change the design. So don't set a blueprint, which can't be changed. Yeah. Be, be adaptive, be agile. So actually people's people don't want to lie. So I, I do, I think, I, I think we have a crisis of lying going on. I really hope that we can solve it, uh, but I think ethics is really, really important. Yeah. If I'm going to plan and forecast, I need to, I don't want to be wasting time decoding whether you're lying to me or not. Yeah. You know, and, and if you put your own money into a business, yeah, you, you don't lie. If you asking for somebody else's money to put into your business, I think there's a temptation to lie. Yeah. So actually having what I call hurt money, involved in things. I, I, I would say you're going to do a big project, you're going to build a bridge, you're going to build a railway, the senior exec should put some hurt money in. If, they're, if, they're, if their plans and forecasts uh, prove to be wrong, then they lose some money. You know, mm -hmm. hurt money is a psychological thing. You know, it, it doesn't take much. You know, if, if I said, um, we're going to set this new business up, you've all got to put in $20,000. And you say to me, oh, I won't do that. But I tell you what I'll do. I'll take a $20,000 salary sacrifice. That's not the same. Yeah. Money that you've already got and is in your bank account that you give to me, that's hurt money. Money that you haven't got yet that you say you're not going to be paid. You psychologically, that's in a different compartment in your brain and, and you don't have as much of an emotional attachment to it. Hurt money is important. Yeah. Mm. You know. That's fascinating, Ken. Ken, um, some absolutely gems of learning along the way here. One of the questions we ask everybody as we hopefully primed yourself was what I wish I didn't know. <laughs> Could you just extrapolate on a, what I wish I didn't know? Oh God. You know, that, oh, that, that'd be embarrassing. That would be admitting there's something I don't know, wouldn't it? Oh. <laughs> this is for your family. What do I wish I didn't know? I guess I can add the numbers on the house yeah. that you got wrong, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. What I wish I didn't know. I don't, it's it's almost like saying as well. It's a question like, what do you regret? Um, uh, uh, there, there's been some really painful points. Yeah, I I I, I am positive. Yeah, I've, I've talked to here in a way which I hope people 
can feel enthusiasm and positivity and you know a man satisfied with life towards the end of his career um but it's been some really really dark days yeah uh, uh, and uh what there are some things that i wish i'd known yeah i i set up a business which failed um there was a big legal fallout um i lost a m lot of money on a law case um i wish i wish i'd known uh, that uh, the person who's playing the most expensive lawyer wins every law case. So you might have a just, you might have a just case, but if you can't afford the top lawyer, you're going to lose. Yeah. Um, I, 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 don't know. I, I have a cynical view of, of people. I'm, I'm afraid uh, trust is so important. So you end up trusting everybody because it's, it's the lubrication for business, but you, you, I, I, I wish, there were more honest people around. You're you are always going to come across dishonest people, and and it's uh, it's something you have to pick yourself up from. People let you down. So, but what I didn't know, uh, seven times table. You know. Well, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Ken, yeah. you've been honest along the way, as you said, and and honesty counts. Um, well, first up, Ken, thanks so much for attending this podcast it's been superb um the stories and the learning along the way have been amazing um i think from us and from the listeners i'm sure there'll be books that will be pulled up now on on the ones that you've just referenced um and like you said early on when we discussed just before the podcast went out you said to me you know you've come from you know a humble a, a beginning with a postcode that was in the bottom 200 i think of, of of the uk to now the top 50 but that's come through you know steadfast hard work knowledge and also a dna in you yeah that that's true yeah of yeah. honesty um well, I'd one thing to yeah i'd add one thing to it simon and, and sorry to always butt in i accept luck as well has played a big part in it yeah so You've got to put yourself in the right position. You've also got to be lucky. And I think somebody with exactly the same qualities as me could have been unlucky. So I'm very grateful to fate as well. Uh, and don't beat yourself up if, if you fail. Uh, sometimes it's just luck, yeah, that, that was the missing link. And you can't control that. That's an, that's an important thing to bear in mind. We do hope you enjoyed this podcast. And thanks for listening to What I Wish I Knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Dorr. Please join us at whatiwishinewshow.com. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please share What I Wish I Knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Dorr with your friends. We welcome your feedback and recommendations of new podcast guests and ideas on topics. If you have business challenges, we're also available for advisory and consulting roles. We'd be delighted to listen and help. Just send us an email. Our address is hello at whatiwishinewshow.com.